In this episode, you'll hear some of the snippets from the most popular episodes of the year, and they cover everything from how to alleviate the symptoms of menopause to toxic relationships to essential oils and how to be with yourself. So come and join us. Hello, my name's Karen O'Connor, and you're listening to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, the podcast that looks at all aspects of women's lives from hormones and health to relationships, finance and social justice issues. You can connect with me on social media at at karen.mmn. If you enjoy this podcast or podcast in general, and you've been wondering whether you should start your own podcast, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is to start podcasting. Now let's get right into it. It's always amazing to look back at the guests that I've had on the podcast in a year and it covers so many topics from menopause, how to manage your hormones in menopause to the impacts of menopause that you didn't know were there, osteoporosis for example, to relationships, getting back onto the dating scene after you've split up in your 50s, all of those kind of things and a lot of personal development stuff as well. Here are snippets from some of the most popular episodes with guests. Next week, I'll be taking a look back at my own year and to see how far I've come and the things that have happened and also to update you a little bit. So make sure you come back for that one. We're going to start this week with an episode from the start of the year with an aromatherapist called Amy Anthony. I've always found aromatherapy really interesting, but she shared a few things that shocked me to the core. Here we go. This is Amy. For women going through menopause, what difference can aromatherapy make? What oils and things? Because I know lavender can help you sleep, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So there's a, a greatest hits selection of plants you can go to. <laughs> but that's what I call them. It's just my way of speaking. This individual, because there's a spillover when you can't sleep, you're having a crappy day, and that crappy day makes you have a worse night. But hands down, it doesn't work for everybody. And please get your hormone levels checked because if you have estrogen dependent issues, you might not turn to some oils, but like some oils that are known to promote estrogen, quote, balance and be pro-estrogen, not saying they're, they are estrogen, but fennel also promotes breast milk. Production, back, you know, when you're at a stage in life where you are breastfeeding, fennel's helpful for that. I'm trying to think, peppermint's known to dry up breast milk. But clary sage is a woman's friend, pro-estrogen, I'll say. I, I need to use different language. I can't sound medical, but I hope I'm coming across. It can help balance the hormones. Geranium is nice overall as a balancer of mood, and even it's nice on skin. You can also, we start to get drier as we age, men and women. Rose is moistening. Like constitutionally, rose water is very nice. Let me just think, Vitex. It's also called chaste tree berry, chaste berry. Is known to be progesterone helpful. I'm probably, So one thing I do, I've had great success from a one-on-one -on -one basis I distill for hydrosols, so floral, the water part you get from distillation. I've done a 50-50 hydrosol mix of clary sage and vitex berry from my garden. And it 
helps women with hot flashes because we always have to look at estrogen and progesterone. And Vitex is shown in a lot of herbals, a lot of wisdom out there about working with Vitex for progesterone balancing or helping. Who else? I don't have all my oils here. I have them at a different location. I was just giving some key ones there, like the clary sage, fennel. One I need to look into more cypress, Cupressa sempervirens, the beloved cypress, Van Gogh and his paintings. Is there some evidence in some aromatherapy books that cypress is um, helpful to the ovaries? But it's that's an interesting one. I would like to get see more research on because I've only seen it in a couple books. But the um, research. A lot of really cool people. I did mention. So, would if you go to PubMed and stuff, you'll find scholarly research. Earlier, I mentioned countries like India. It's doing the research. They're doing the academic stuff. Egypt, uh, that whole part of the world, Latin America, there's scholars doing this research. And then you'll have some aromatherapists that go in and might get involved in that research. Or they'll try, they'll find it and, and what's the word? File it together and uh, put it together. Compile it. But yeah. thank you. I have that. I've had a crazy day. Or cake, timing's off. Ah. <laughs> must bake a cake, <laughs> compiling <laughs> research and coming up with some good reference books. But I think I shared some good oils there as a starter for people to look for. And do you apply those to the skin? Do you inhale them? Should you actually ingest essential oils? So I'm a fan for inhalation. So the client that I made stuff for, because this is just fresh on the top of mind, I made an aromatic spritzer with the base of my hydrosols and essential oils in at, uh, I think I did a 2% dilution. So of that volume, 2% of that's essential oil. That's all you need. And I made her a wow. face oil because she we talked about she really wanted a face oil. So I think I did that at 1.5%. So I did topical, but also I told her spray her hair so it gets to be inhalation. And she likes to put oil in her hair, like to help with split ends and stuff. So it was it's both topical and inhalation. And I, I can't stress how inhalation is so powerful. I have to share, I have something on my website I want you to be aware of to, like how do yeah. you smell an oil and I have an exercise but internal use has its place under someone who can make a product for you like capsules or I have made suppositories but it is like I make something for you and it's done for a week two weeks it's very interesting. It must be diluted. It must be portioned properly. It's not daily use for whatever. Go and eat real food. <laughs> don't like, don't take lemon oil in every day. There's no benefit to that. You can actually hurt your mucosa because it's so concentrated. The internal use has its place. It depends on what country and jurisdiction and like legally what you can do here in the U.S., we really can't talk about internal use and it's really frowned upon. Uh, so you really have to be schooled and ideally you're a medical professional or you're a herbalist. So it's dicey. Gonna, yeah. I was going to ask you something and I've completely forgotten. So you keep talking while I see if I remember what it is. 
I think you did ask me about distillation before, but I wrote it down. That's why I remember. But I just feel like with the way I'm speaking about this, I just have to say as a representative for the Alliance of International Aromatherapists, we do not advocate for internal use. But knowingly, as I as a practitioner and with myself on very rare occasions, I have made myself pessaries. I was working with, I'll be really honest, I had a hysterectomy just a few weeks ago. And I, was, I had a very problematic fibroid. And I was working with myself for a small amount of time. I was made myself pessaries. By the way, I found, because essential oils work on our mood as well, on our neurotransmitters, the stuff I had in there, I had geranium, pelargonium graviolins, is balancing to mood. I found myself after about, it's always after about three days, I found myself like, oh yeah, I feel pretty this is okay. And I'm sharing that to, because I'm really honest and share too much information, but geranium could have that effect. You could put it in a rollerball, apply once a day or twice a day, or you can smell it once or twice a day for like two minutes, three minutes. And if you do that daily for two to three days, you might find you're like, oh, the edge is off. And that's what essential oils do. They take the edge off of things. They try to bring you back to that. I don't like the word homeostasis or allostasis. It's the, I want to bring you back to where you are just, yeah, I'm me. This is good. The next episode is about menopause. One of the things that we tend to do, if something doesn't feel right or it's bothering us, we tend to want a quick fix. We reach for a pill or we might reach for the alcohol or we might go and get some comfort food, whatever it is, but we want something to fix us now. Here in this episode, I talked to Lisa Baker and she tells us how we can actually make a difference with those perimenopause and menopause symptoms without it taking too much time. It's not a quick fix because the quick fixes tend not to work for too long. They make us feel good quickly but the effect also wears off very quickly. So how do we fix them reasonably quickly with a long lasting effect? Lisa Baker shares her knowledge with us. We do look on menopause as it's an ending and our life is over and it's, it's all downhill from here. And it's not, it's actually- it's Yeah, it's a very different. Western world perspective that once you hit 50, you're, you're pretty much useless. We've, yeah. In America, especially, we've really moved away from multi-generational families. Grandparents are somebody you visit once a year. Whereas you know, I grew up in a very untraditional household. My mother was not from America and my grandmother lived with us. And so growing up, I had this extended family and just there's a very different sense of what our elders can bring to the conversation, can bring to the family dynamic that is missing in a lot of nuclear families in America, I think. And there is culturally speaking in the East, in, in Japan, especially this transition to, to menopause is viewed as it's sacred. It's really something that's honored and respected and you now have all this wisdom and i always like to say it's time to own the crone you really just stop thinking about the crone as that old ugly hag and think of her as the original meaning of that word which is this incredible wise woman this sort of priestess figure who has all this wisdom and can share it with you and spare you all the difficulties that you're going through if you would just listen to her mm, <laughs> kind of like yeah. being a parent right mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, totally, totally. And it's so tell me how you help women through that menopause period. What do you do? What do I do? Like I said, one of the very first things I try to do with them is to a mindset shift. Can we look at this as, oh, my body is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. So what can I do to support it so I'm not having all these hideous symptoms? Because I love the work uh, Christiane Northrup. I'm yeah, sure you've correct. read her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's the one who says, you know, when you <laughs> menopause is not a Xanax deficiency. <laughs> but if you were to go <laughs> but if you were to go to a, a standard sort of conventional medical practitioner in America and say, I'm having hot flashes and I'm having some dr- vaginal dryness and I'm not sleeping well at night, they'll be like, Oh, you just need some hormones. We'll just bump you up on hormones and you'll be fine. Or here's a Xanax if you're anxious. And really the way to look at it is, is exactly what Northrop says, which is every month for your fertile years, your body has been like tapping you on the shoulder. Hello, are you taking care of me? Hello. You know what? This week, I really don't feel like working out very hard. I'd like to just curl up with a hot water bottle, you know, but what do we do? Like we push through, we go to work, we like do everything we're supposed to do. And our bodies are just in revolt and they're trying to get our attention all the time. And if we don't pay attention to them, perimenopause is like your body's Hail Mary. <laughs> okay, you haven't been listening? Here's a two by four to the head and, <laughs> and you're, now you're gonna pay attention to me. So really what I try to do is to get women to think about what am I doing on a daily basis that can support my body in healing itself, in getting through this stage as graciously and gracefully as possible. And for example, a lot of women say, oh, I'm having the worst hot flashes. And I'm sure you've seen this. If you lurk on Facebook pages that are meant to support women in perimenopause, whoo, what a cesspool those can be. (laughs) People will say, oh my God, I'm having hot flashes. What can I do? And the advice starts. I took this herb, this supplement, this, do this, do that. And actually nobody is saying what's actually causing them because we just think, oh, it's hormones and they're shifting. Yes. And if you start paying attention, you can actually track your hot flashes and think about what did I eat? How did I sleep? Was I exercising before this happened? Because I guarantee you, if you do that, you'll be like, oh, every time I eat something sugary, I have a hot flash. Every time I have a drink, I have a hot flash. And so then the beauty of that becomes sometimes you still want that glass of wine, but at least you have some agency over it. If you know that alcohol causes a hot flash in you, and it's different for everybody, but I'm just naming the really most common ones are alcohol, caffeine, sugar, and stress. So those four, let's just work with those. So if you know that wine is going to give you a hot flash, then you can decide, is it worth it? Because sometimes it is. Sometimes you're like, yeah, I'll have that glass of wine and I'll suffer the consequences. But that's what it's all about really is reclaiming that agency over your body and over your health and over your choices. Because very often we feel very disempowered about what's going on with me and tell me what to do. I'll do anything if you could just make this go away. This year has been, shall we say, a big learning experience for me. And One of the good things about this year is this conversation that I had at the start of the year with Gaj Ravichandra. Gaj is a psychologist and the conversation we had here was about learning how to be with ourselves, how to sit with ourselves, with our thoughts and recognize them for what they are, just thoughts. It's not the truth. It's not anything else. But also 
teaching ourselves how to have the ability as to which thoughts we act on and which thoughts we don't. In this conversation, Gaj explains how fear drives us and how we are all broken. So interesting. I love what you just said, that the universe lives through you, right? And and this is something that I'm a massive believer in, that nowhere in the history of mankind has there ever been a Karen like you, right? Or a person like you. There will never be a person like you who has had the combination of your thoughts, your feelings, your behavior, your ancestral inheritance, all these wonderful things, right? We take the good and the bad, right, with any of these things and try and work, make sense of it for ourselves. But the fact that you are so unique, the fact that you have brought this immense and complex combination of things together means that we need to see this, right? And we need to see, and I think where we don't want to express ourselves clearly comes from insecurity or fear, right? And so if we manage that, the the uncertainty of, are people going to accept me for who I am? Are they going to be able to understand who I am? And I think in any of those situations, from my perspective, it's really, it's a two-way conversation, right? There's an onus and responsibility on us to be able to express ourselves so that people can understand us. And there is an onus and responsibility on the receiver of that information, right, to also do that. Now, we can't control the receiver. And it goes back to this point of if we were to control the controllables, right, what's in my control here? What's in my control is how I come across, how I pass on this information and knowledge um, to this person at this time based on where they are at. You know, we all go through this, and this is a lot of self-doubt, uh, whether we call it imposter syndrome or various other things that, that creep into ourselves. And, and I think a lot of that, when I do talk to people, and you know, when we look at the fact that most high performers or highly capable people, over 70% will, will struggle with this, right, throughout their lives. And part of that is around, I think, am I going to please other people? Am I actually going to be accepted in some way? Am I going to lose my place um, where I am in society as a result of me verbalizing or acting in a particular way. And we've talked, we've seen the cancel culture, we've seen other things come up that really do put sometimes a, a bit of a break on who we might be and how we might express ourselves. And not necessarily to the point where we are offending other people, but at least to have some freedom, right, in terms of how we communicate. And so I think there's a, it's really interesting when we go through this because. For me, it's also about reconnecting with who we are from a genuine perspective, right? If I'm going to be consistent in my behavior, I'm more than likely going to be more truer to myself, right? And so that requires less cognitive energy, right? Because otherwise you're creating structures in your mind to filter who I am as a person. And that requires a lot of energy. And so where is our energy better spent? Is it better spent on trying to filter filter or is it about finding ways of expressing and connecting with people right that are going to get some value from what it is that we do so i think that that's always been interesting to me and how people do that and how they choose to find if you like their tribe and their connection point and going through a process of actually understanding where you are and, and you know you're a different person at different points of your life and to assume that i am the same person i was three years ago is a bit of a fallacy. And so we need to work through this constant uh, way of, of looking at how we uh, interact with people, what gives us happiness and enjoyment and fulfillment. And I think a lot of that comes down to really understanding 
what are we driven by externally and internally? And that changes over time. Our values, what is important to us, that's less less likely to change over time. Sometimes the the priority of the things that we value might shift, obviously, depending on where we are in our lives. And then this sense of our motivated skills, right? The, the cross or the intersection between what we're good at and what we enjoy doing. And when we understand those things, that also makes it much easier for us to have a greater impact on the purposes that we want to have. And one of the th- things that always frustrates me when I hear people talk about purpose is that we're not here for one thing, right? There's not one magical purpose that we are here to deliver on, right? It doesn't exist. And I'm, so we're fragile, much more fragile than we used to be. We're a lot more anxious, right? Because it's so hard to predict what's going to happen. And therefore, that sense of uncertainty raises our anxiety levels, right? About what, what's going on. It's also non-linear, which means if I used to do X, Y, Z, I know that I was going to get to this point. That isn't necessarily the case anymore right? And so I can't predict what's going to happen. I can't just act in a linear way, right? And then the last part is incomprehensible, which means that there are a lot of things out of our control. And a lot of the problems, I think, Karen, stem from the fact that we are trying to control things that we can't. And so as a result of that, bringing that conversation back in and saying, what are the three or four things right now that I can influence and control quite strongly? And how do I lean into those things? to be able to get the best outcome. Right? We all tend to think of trauma as some traumatic event. We're in a car crash or something happens to somebody close or we're attacked or something. That's a traumatic event. But in actual fact, psychologist Alice Kirby explains to us how trauma can actually be a build-up of little things. It doesn't need to be one massive event. In this episode, she looks at how trauma can actually build up in our lives as an accumulation of stress and that any kind of trauma can lead to addiction, something that we probably all know is growing and becoming a bigger problem in our society today. So how do we recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma in ourselves and others and what can we do about it? Alice explains. Trauma can be a big event or it can also be these small incremental events. It can also be our perception of an event, particularly as children. And it's really how our body grabs onto and holds. We can walk by, one of my favorite examples is we can walk by a dog and it could be a small dog, a little poodle. But let's let's say we're a young kid and every day when we walk by this dog, it runs to the fence and it's rawr, rawr, rawr. We get really scared of it. Maybe it gets close to biting us one day. So then we develop an irrational fear of dogs and we may not even remember this, but it can be stored in our body. So now every time we see a poodle, we cross the street. So we start narrowing our experiences to avoid the thing that reminded us of the trauma. And that can be subconscious. And it can be something as simple as that, as a poodle barking at us. But as a child, or this doesn't have to happen as children, but it can. Frequently it does. But then it's just wrapped into us. And so when we're able to work with some of those the patterns that are stored in our physiology and unwind them, it really does open us up to experience more of life, which is you know pretty great. So, and the somatic, what's a somatic, what was it, experience? Sure. So it's called somatic experiencing and it's a particular type of trauma work. Somatic means of the body. So there are certainly, like you'll hear somatic used in in many other terms or 
or places around because it just means of the body. But somatic experiencing is a particular methodology to work with trauma in this way. And it was developed by Dr. Peter Levine. He's a pretty big name in the trauma industry. He's written quite a few books and yeah, he's pretty well known. You could Google him if anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about his work, but he developed this system of somatic experiencing and it works with trauma in the way that I'm describing where the imprint of the trauma is stored in the body. And so that we don't necessarily have to go back to the conscious memory. We can work with that imprint that's in the body and begin to unwind it and to bring the nervous system back to a place of like full, I was going to say full expression. I don't know if that's the most appropriate way to say that, but I think it does get the point across. It allows us again to come back into our body and occupy it fully versus reliving out these patterns that get stored or stuck in the physiology. Those things happen. It's really good to stop, pull over, take five minutes, let the stress actually leave your body. You'll see with animals in the wild after the deer's running from the tiger or what have you, they'll when they get away, they'll do a little twitching or a little discharge and it just happens naturally, but it's actually allowing some of the stress chemicals and that trauma or that chronic stress that can get stored. It allows it to leave, taking some time to let that happen, whether it's right after the incident or this is part of what this work does too, is if you work with someone around things like that, then you can revisit where that happened and let it go like through your body, through just working with the nervous system. Let that stuff discharge. It's so important. Cause I think we say let it go a lot, but it's what, like, how do we do that? So it's yeah. good to have some guidelines for what yeah. that is. <laughs> and it's also good for if as I'm talking about this or you've got a client talking about it, you can go, okay, stop. Yep. Do you see what you're doing? Okay, let's just like shimmy that one out and shake it out, do whatever, or just break the pattern. Is that what you'd say? Sorry, I'm just putting words in you. It's because I no, want to shimmy no. it out. <laughs> yeah, you definitely can. And usually I don't direct, because I want the system to do, I, I want to track the system. And so usually I don't tell people to shake or, or move in, in that thing if we're tracking a pattern like that. But I will ask them to observe what's happening. And then we like track and follow it and see what happens within the system versus me trying to interrupt a system a system wide pattern if it's in the middle because we I want it to go through what it needs to like to go through to completion and then that loop gets done and it's out of the body I don't know if that makes sense in this yeah. realm but it's more about like tracking and seeing what's there versus trying to override it. Yep, I understand. In, in, in a case like that, if we're talking about, I want to do like a pattern interruption, that's a little bit different. Like less, like we just talked about with, if we're sitting still for so long, then let's get up and move. But if I'm working with someone around an accident or something like that, I would try to just more watch what's happening and, and guide them to track that. Interestingly, two of the most popular episodes of this year have been about toxic relationships, how to deal with them and how to spot them. The first of these was with psychologist Romy Kunitz who takes a look at why some of us keep finding ourselves in the same kind of relationships over and over again. We keep repeating those negative patterns. Why does that happen and what can we do about it? Find out now. Say you begin to recognize that pattern in there. How do you break it? By either entering into therapy, which can help us to understand ourselves, process things, become more self-aware, look at these patterns of behavior without just like leaping into it with this hope. Oh, I hope I'm not going to do this again. 
So maybe by trying to uncover what it's about and understand it. Ah, so maybe I'm doing, because it's unconscious, one doesn't maybe even realize it, even if it appears obvious. So when you're saying you've got to try to understand what it's about, is that your motivation for doing it that you're talking about there? or what When is one that? sees that there's perhaps maladaptive ways of coping, other people are noticing, you're noticing that you are getting out of control, maybe with alcohol, with drugs, with sex, with relationships, with um, fighting with everybody. And you or other people are noticing that this is maladaptive and this is really affecting you. But I suppose what we need to really say is that it doesn't have to really affect you and really be so bad for you to want to change it. And remember that there's some gratification, there's something familiar in the familiar. So that's why we might not, we might recognize it, but we might find ourselves being drawn into the same behaviors. Obviously, we're getting into alcohol as an addictive substance, drugs, they're neurologically addictive. But the, there are patterns of repetition. There are triggers. And most of what we're saying is that those triggers are often, it's often unconscious to us. But there's times when it's conscious. And then we might do one of two things. We might just ignore it because of the overwhelmingly powerful nature of the familiar and that it feels safe in some way. And the other thing that we do is that it takes effort and energy. And we also, as much as we might like, and this is why people are sometimes resistant to come for therapy, is there's, we like talking about ourselves, especially in social situations. We like going on a date and someone asking us about us and being interested in us and us being able to talk about ourselves. We all have that narcissistic part inside of ourselves that wants to that really wants people to be interested in us and wants to be seen and all of that. But there's also exposure and there's also talking about these things and there's also reminding ourselves of the terrible thing that happened to us with our ex and what we did and how we regret maybe some behaviours or we can't remember what happened last night because we were absolutely intoxicated, whatever it is, it's difficult. And that's why we resist change. We resist adaptation. We resist all of these things. And it must be more difficult to even consider adapting if you're in, you, somebody's just died or you've just broken up from a relationship because adapting takes effort, constant effort. And you might not have the energy for that. What happens then? Yes, and also because, remember, your rational brain isn't working very well because you're so traumatized. You're so either shut down or your system is so activated, and then you can't think. When you are in that fight, flight, freeze response, you can't process, you can't think. So often what we have to do is work on our bodies. And then there's two things that basically neuroscientists have been able to research that change the brain and that are necessary in order to be able to cope or to help people to cope. And that is the one being meditation and the other one being exercise. 
So we have to, this is why it's so important to move our bodies. And sometimes when we're obviously really depressed and we don't have the same motivation or the same energy, even going for brisk walks is really important to keep moving. Obviously, if we can do more than that, like at least 30 minutes a day or 20 minutes, it's really important. That will help us to basically, it's like a natural antidepressant. We release endorphins when we exercise. And the other thing is meditation because that helps us to take away some of the noise and just focus inwardly. And obviously that would be accompanied with breathing or something called progressive muscle relaxation. The second of the toxic behavior episodes looks at how to deal with toxic behavior in other people, specifically in other people. Sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we can't get away from that toxic behavior. It might be in a work colleague or it might be another parent at school. It might even be one of the kids. So how do we deal with it objectively and respectfully and allow ourselves to put in our boundaries without causing offense and without causing a big upset? Professor Francis K. Lampkin, great name, explains how. Explain what gaslighting is first from a psychologist's viewpoint. Yes. So people may or may not have seen um, the movie in the maybe the 70s called Gaslight, where the premise is it's, 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 there's a male and a female in the movie and the male makes comments and interacts with the female in a way so that she thinks that she's going a bit crazy and that there's something wrong with her by because the way so she's picking up on stuff that's happening and she's becoming suspicious about what's happening and the guy is actually going no no you're crazy or you're being emotional there's nothing to see here and turns it back around on her and her emotions when in reality he's doing exactly what she's accusing him of doing and that's a really bad way of describing what's you know a good plot in a good movie but the term gaslighting is, is originated there and is now in common society today just being used to describe the way some people can manipulate other people's feelings and sense of self and sense of reality in a way that benefits them. Is gaslighting? I think there are extreme versions of it. I think we're seeing some extreme versions of it on, on mass. But being in a relationship and whether it's a work relationship or a private relationship or a parental relationship is all about trying to work out how to work together to get your needs met. And so I guess it exists in lots and lots of lots of forms. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it's really in its extreme form that it's that it's really problematic in that if if it's making the other person feel like they are unworthy, that they are that there's something wrong with them, that they are invalidated in expressing their thoughts and feelings and asking questions and that they're being somewhat persecuted by the other person for doing so, that's when it's really awful. It's just that, and I think that's the gaslighting that we're talking about. I'm not, I'm not saying any form of gaslighting is fine, but there are other things that are called gaslighting that probably aren't, which are just trying to get our needs met in an open and objective way, like we might be trying to parent our kids in a certain way. So I think there's a it's that extreme end of the spectrum that's called gaslighting and there are lots and lots of ways in which we use relationships and interactions to get our needs met. I hope you enjoyed that compilation of some of the most downloaded episodes of the year. If you have a favorite episode, I'd love for you to let me know. Drop me a line or DM me on social media. That's probably the easiest thing. I'd love to hear from you. 
In the meantime, I hope you're having a wonderful Christmas. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget, if you've been thinking how great it would be to have your own podcast so that you can interview guests and speak to people about the topics that you're interested in personally, head on over to speakuppodcasting.com to find out just how easy and cheap it is for you to start podcasting. There's a download on how to start a podcast for free waiting there for you. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Yeah.